Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Just an episode or two ago, I decided to lay out a number of things which are Protestant ideas, which I don't think Protestants should accept, that I think a fair reading of scripture will land you on the more Catholic side. So, let's assume that you have ridded your mind of those six things, I think there were six, and you need six things to take their place. Well, may I suggest that you listen to the rest of this episode, because that's what we're talking about today. Six Catholic things which Protestants could accept while remaining Protestant. Now, there's certain ideas where you can't accept it and remain Protestant, so the papacy's not on here. And I didn't include some other big ones like the Eucharist. So in no particular order, let's begin. The first thing I think Protestants could, and many do, accept today is prayer to the saints. The intercession of the saints is a very old practice, as we will soon see. But I want to defend a few things which go into this doctrine first, and I'll be defending them from Scripture, which, again, this is, I mean, I'll be appealing to some early church fathers and to some tradition, yes, but I think just the strength of the scriptural argument should make you adopt the position which looks more Catholic on this subject and not the one which is more traditionally Protestant. So the first thing is we know that people who are dead are actually aware, conscious, awake, alive, all of that. And we covered some of that in the last episode of things which you probably shouldn't believe. But let's pull up that section which I referenced earlier um, in the book of Samuel. And is it in the book of Samuel? Anyways, it's about Samuel, and here's how it goes. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritualists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up at Shulam, and Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilgaboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or by Urim or prophets. So Saul said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I can go and inquire of her. There's one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one that I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He's cut off the mediums and spiritualists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about death for me? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, Who shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, says Saul. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams, so I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? 
And the Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Immediately Saul Saul fell full lengths to the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all day and night. Now, is this a warning to not go to spiritualists? Yes. Is this a warning not to go to mediums? Yes. Was it rightly condemned what he did? Oh, absolutely. But here's what this does definitively prove. That who he saw was Samuel. Scripture names this as Samuel. Also, Saul recognizes him as Samuel. Now, there's this little bit you may not have picked up on that he sees him described in this robe. Well, that robe is important because at one point Saul gets upset at Samuel's message and he grabs onto his robe and he tears off a piece. And Saul and Samuel says to Saul, in the same way that that tore off in your hands, Israel will be torn away from you or something like that. So this is a distinctive robe, which was Samuel's. So it could be that what she saw and described, or possibly what he saw, was this robe with the tear that he himself took out. So the text shows this is Samuel. Samuel is aware of what's going on, aware of the situation, aware of what Saul did, upset at Saul. Um, Yeah. So anybody who says that no, 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 those who are dead don't know what's going on on earth, really? Or are asleep? Nope. Um, Yeah, none of that's true. We have eyewitness account right here, but that's not the only place. Second Maccabees, we have Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, caught in the act of praying. Let me read that section to you. What he saw was this, Onias, the former high priest, a noble and good man, modest and bearing, gentle in manner, distinguished in speech, and trained from childhood in all that belongs to excellence, was praying with outstretched arms for the whole community. Then, in the same way, another man appeared, distinguished by his white hair and dignity, and with an air of wondrous and majestic authority. Onias then said to him, This is a man who loves his fellow Jews and fervently prays for the people and the holy city, the prophet of God, Jeremiah. Oh, look at that. He's dead, yes, but he's loving and fervently praying for the people and the holy city. That's what the prophet of God, Jeremiah, is seen doing. That's 2 Maccabees. You might be thinking, well, I don't accept Second Maccabees. But A, you should. And two, can't you admit that at very least, this is just an uncontested part of Jewish thinking at the time that Maccabees is written? That yes, indeed, in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish culture, it was believed that those who were the righteous dead were indeed praying. Even if you don't accept the rest of scripture, even if you don't accept that that happens, that does point to the fact that this is the belief in Judaism. Let me give you a few more passages. Jesus says that Abraham saw, quote, his day. So we have in uh, John 8, so verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, right, past tense. He saw it, present tense, so right now he's seeing it. 
and was glad. So he then understands what's going on. So it seems that Jesus affirms that those who are the righteous dead can see what is going on. He rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. I think that's the most natural reading of this passage. But we have more scriptural evidence that the saints do indeed know what's going on in our praying. This is from Revelation. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? So they're crying out to God, even though they're dead, they're seen in heaven, and they know that judgment has not yet come on those who, um, those who killed the mismartyrs. So there we go. But we can continue. Later on, we have, And when he had uh, taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lord. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of, the God, of God's people. That's Revelation 5. I guess the last one was Revelation 6. So, what does that mean? Now, some Protestants say, oh, no, 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 It was, and this is funny to me because they'll go one of two ways. That wasn't the prayers of people on earth. That was the prayers of those elders being offered to God. Okay, great. Now you're just proving my point that those in heaven are indeed praying. They'll go, no, 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 no. Okay, no, 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 no. Others will say, that is just the prayers of the people on earth. This does not prove that they're praying in heaven. Well, okay, great. Now it shows that they have a privileged role in offering that which is coming from earth in the form of prayer up to God. That doesn't really help the Protestant position either. So I see either way you read this, their distinctive role in offering up these prayers to God as incense for God's people Boy, that supports the Catholic understanding of the role of those in heaven in praying for God's people, offering up the prayers that they hear, etc. But that's not all. This is straight from Jewish tradition. This just is Judaism, the idea that the righteous dead can pray. Um, so don't don't act like, well, you know, there's the Protestant tradition is the one in line with the Jewish faith of our Jewish Messiah. It's not. I pulled this from a website. This is rashiba.org, and it's just describing the holy sites in Israel. It's not even really making theological points. It's just talking about what's happening today in Israel. And this goes back 3,000 years. Let me read this to you. This is from a purely Jewish source. So no dog in the whole Protestant Catholic can the dead pray fight. It's simply describing their own tradition. Here we go. For millennia, Jews have made pilgrimages to Rachel's tomb, considered the third holiest shrine in the land of Israel. For the past 3,000 years, Jews have prayed at Rachel's tomb whenever the Jewish people face sorrows due to the belief that her prayers to God have special powers. Since she herself was childish for many, childless for many years, many Jewish women with fertility issues pray to have children by her grave. According to the Jewish tradition, the matriarch Rachel has always cried for her people whenever the Jewish people needed her. Jacob reportedly buried her in Bethlehem instead of the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron because he foresaw that his descendants would need her prayers en route to exile in Babylonia. As Jeremiah 31, 15, 17 states, quote, Rachel, weeping for her children, she refuses to be comforted for her children who are gone. Thus says Rashem, 
Restrain your voice from weeping, your eyes from shedding tears, for there is no reward for your labor, declares Hashem. They shall return from the enemy's land, and there is no hope for the future, declares Hashem. Your children shall return to their own country. The sight has been absorbed, has absorbed countless tears of barren women beseeching God in the merit in the merit of Mother Rachel. Listen to how Catholic this sounds if we just substituted the 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 greatest woman in the New Testament age, Mary, for this. Beseeching God in the merit of Mother Rachel. This is what Jews believe who herself had been barren for many years. Hmm. You know, interesting parallel. She is barren, and yet a son comes out. And we have Mary is a virgin, and yet she is given a son. So a lot of parallels here, by the way. Jews have poured out their hearts there, praying for everything from world redemption to a suitable marriage partner. To this day, men and women go to Rachel's tomb to shed tears and beg, quote, Mother Rachel to intercede with God on their behalf for the health of a loved one or for divine intervention for those in need. Rachel, the childless woman who ultimately became the mother of the Jewish people, has become a special symbol of hope for childless women and all those in need of a special blessing, teaching them from the power, the power of prayer. Hundreds of requests are sent every month to Kever Rachel from Jews worldwide, requesting prayers to be said on behalf of illness, the childless, and those in need of a special blessing. For thousands of years, Jews have unburdened their hearts to Rachel and had their prayers answered. The barren were blessed with children, the sick were cured, the single found Shiddishkam, and the brokenhearted found solace and peace. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping, and it quotes this uh, once again. So there's that. Now, note, this this part of Jeremiah that they quoted is echoing the gospel. So there's a few, like, prophecies that get fulfilled in the gospels, and almost all of them are about Jesus, right? We can say there's a few prophecies about Mary, right? The the idea that in Isaiah that a uh, virgin will conceive. We have in Genesis the idea that there will be a woman that should bring about this Messiah, right? So we have some prophecies about Jesus. We have prophecies about Mary. But quite interestingly, there's a fulfilled prophecy about Rachel. And it's quoting Jeremiah, the same part that was just quoted here. So here's what the gospel says. This is pulled from Matthew, Matthew 2, I believe. When Herod realized they had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accord with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. There you go. Rachel knows what's going on. She is conscious of it. She is weeping over this. And we have a tradition of prayer. It says these boys in Bethlehem are killed. And guess where she, her shrine was? We just learned it. Her shrine was in Bethlehem. That's why she has this unique prophetic um, role in crying out from the place of her shrine, which was already a place where one would be... um, be praying for her intercession. This is affirmed straight by scripture. This is the tradition of Judaism. This went into the early church. I'm sorry, this is slam dunk stuff, but we go on. We have Paul telling us that um, 
No part of the body can say to another part of the body, I have no need of you. This is a principle that all Christians must hold. If you say that you accept the Bible, you must accept that. So I'm going to ask you, what do you need from the great part of the body who has already gone before us and is in the presence of God in heaven? Hmm? Can you think of anything? What do you need? Oh, uh, they're worshiping God. Okay, yep, that's good for them, good for God. I'm glad they're doing that at the church, yes. But you have a certain need of them. What do you think they could possibly do that would help you? Well, prayers, right? That would be a pretty obvious way for them to do that, right? So we already have an injunction that we can't say of another part of the body, I have no need of you. So we have to come up with some type of need that we have of those in heaven. And I would suggest, given the tradition, given scripture, given the early church, prayers would be an excellent candidate for what need we have of those in heaven. So let's get to a few counter arguments. One is, well, they're just calling up spirits, right? That's what we're doing. We're doing necromancy. We're doing witchcraft. We're doing what the witch of Endor was doing, right? That's what we're doing. Uh, no, not at all. Here's the thing. A lot of Protestants push this point, and they really, really shouldn't. In fact, they need to be very careful, tread lightly, and probably just retract all of what they're saying in this respect. Here's why. If you are somebody who says it is always wrong to talk to the dead, that that is a sin, then you're condemning Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He spoke with his friends, Moses and Elijah, about his exodus. So, I'm sorry, it's not a sin to talk to the dead. Not when God allows it. Not when God sends it. Not when it's ordained by God. Are you kidding me? Of course not. That would condemn Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So that type of argument, if you push it too hard, becomes blasphemous because you're condemning Jesus. So you need to back it up and understand that there are times when this is wrong and times where this is perfectly fine. The same Jewish faith, which created a shrine for Rachel, would also condemn the sin of witchcraft, sometimes with capital punishment. So they got this distinction. We need to understand this distinction too. So I think for that reason, that type of counterargument fails. Next one you commonly hear is, well, you're never commanded to do this. Well, I mean, you're never commanded to make religious art, not in the New Covenant anyway. Um, I don't think you're ever commanded to worship the Holy Spirit, to pray to the Holy Spirit, maybe worship. But, I mean, there's precious little about the role of the Holy Spirit and how we should interact. But I think we think that we can invoke the Holy Spirit in prayer. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's not explicitly commanded, but certainly is either expected or is part of the tradition of the church. And I'm sure I could I could name plenty. Um, I will add that although this practice is in the Old Covenant, and I think it was effective, it, it is something going on, boy, it's nothing like what happens in the New Covenant. Because when God, in the person of Jesus Christ, frees the righteous dead and brings them to heaven, and his work and the cross and being resurrected, at that point, we get a very different afterlife dynamic where all of the Old Testament patriarchs and then all of the saints running up there are in heaven and have this special role of intercession, which is seen in Revelation. So in the New Testament, all of the people writing the New Testament, I mean, they're all the first generation. So not very many of them have died, would be subjects of 
of potential, um, uh, you know, asking of intercession. So we would only expect to see this pop up a couple generations after the New Testament in force because, well, we just need people to die to have that working out. And the only people who would be, um, we would be asking intercession of um, in the New Testament age would be people who have already died in the Old Testament. And we do have Rachel, and we already covered that. And we do have uh, the intercession of Jeremiah already affirmed. So this is what we would expect. We wouldn't expect Peter to be like, you know, we should really ask intercession of Mary. Mary's alive when Peter's writing his letters. So we have to look outside of that time period captured in the New Testament. So A, it's not commanded isn't really a great argument, especially because we can also look at some of Paul's words talking about ask intercession one for another. And you're going to have to show me why that command in scripture doesn't apply to those in heaven, because it seems that all of us are called to intercede one for another. So you're going to have to make a positive case. And if you're a Protestant only from scripture, if that's something that you still hold to, um, why the people in heaven are not under Paul's command to intercede for one another. And well, good luck, because that's not in scripture. So yeah, in a sense, we have a command if we understand that all of us are to be interceding in heaven. Um, We have the New Testament snapshot um, covering a period where New Testament saints are not yet dead. We already have Old Testament witness of this. And yeah, we don't even need to, I mean, not every practice we do needs to be commanded in scripture. Next one. This one, I think, is the most prominent, but probably the worst argument. Some say, well, Jesus is the only mediator. Um, I think we commonly, I mean, Catholics, uh, maybe Orthodox, maybe Anglicans, treat this one with kit gloves when we really shouldn't. Let me give you an example. Let's say we're in a rural area, and there is one cell tower that connects man and the the rest of everything, the the Verizon network, um, everybody else afterwards, right? So we have um, the whole network of everything. We have the cell tower in between, and then we have all the people with cell phones. And there's only one cell tower in this area. And let's say you and I, a couple friends are around and we need a pizza. And you think, well, I'll call and order a pizza. And I say, hey man, it's cool. I got this one. I'll cover pizza. Let me give you, let me, let me call that up for you. Would you, or would you think anybody was anything other than unhinged if they replied, what, do you think you're a cell tower? What, you can make a call for me? You think you're a cell phone tower. That, that, that's a completely non, non sequitur. That makes no sense. Somebody making a call for you to call in a pizza doesn't imply that they think they're a cell phone tower or that the cell phone is taking the place of the tower. It's still going through the tower to the network. How is that possibly missed? This is the most obvious thing ever. So Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. He's the only thing that connects the two. Just like the cell phone tower is the only thing that connects your cell phone to the wider network. Just because other people make a call doesn't mean they become cell phone towers. Just because other people would make a prayer doesn't mean they all of a sudden become mediators between God and man. This is a very bad argument. I think there could be better arguments you can make, 
Maybe you could really try to define that whole consorting with spirits argument. Like, that's a lot more promising. If you want to defeat the Catholic view, I would say look into that, defend that, and try to prove what Catholics are doing is running afoul of those commandments. That's not a bad argument. I think you're wrong, but that could work. This argument about Jesus being the only mediator is just ridiculous. Catholics go, yes, duh, we all know this. This is like church doctrine. You can't not believe that Jesus is the only mediator and be Catholic. What we're talking about is interceding one for another. And if you look at that passage in Paul, which talks about Jesus being the only mediator, the next verse is talking about how we're commanded to pray one for another. So I'm kicking this whole argument out as a good objection. I think it's a really bad objection. Um, all right, here's another one. Then there's the, well, how would it work objections? And I think those are at least better than the Jesus is the only mediator objection, which, yes, we all know he's the only mediator. Well, here's a couple options. One, the beatific vision. What's that? It means that God knows all things by actually knowing himself, because he is the maximum of the genus of truth. Ergo, he has omniscience for many philosophical reasons, but we'll leave it there. So how do we know things in heaven? Well, what we're doing is we're actually contemplating God. We're seeing him face to face. We're looking at him. We're, we're staring into his very being. We, we know him like, like the other members of the Trinity are, are knowing one another, though in, empowered by that same divine love in heaven, right? So that's what the activity we do as much as we can do it. Uh, that's what's going on in heaven. So if God knows all things by knowing himself, by looking into his own essence, and we're looking into his essence, we're looking into God, then we would know, maybe not everything, but certainly a lot of things, or things pertinent to us maybe, in the same way that God knows all things. So we might have a finite list of truths that we know, or whatever. I'm not an expert on exactly the details. But that's one avenue, right? We're looking into truth itself. Boom. Also, um, Scripture says that our angels always behold the face of God. So we have angels who advocate for us. They behold the face of God. They know what's going on with us. So here's a mechanism. We pray. Our guardian angel knows what's going on. And he, beholding the face of God, tells God. <laughs> and God tells the saint. Or the angel goes over and tells the saint. So he goes, yeah, yeah, Mary, um, my guy's praying right now. Next one is, Protestants already have, like, language which describes um, when God prompts them to pray. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, God really laid you on my heart? It's a very Protestant phrase, but it's not wrong. It's very right. That happens all the time. God prompts us to pray for other people. Let me ask you, does this happen more often when you're living a righteous or an unrighteous life? Like, are you smoking crack and then all of a sudden, hmm, God laid on my heart to pray for my friend Bob. Or are you maybe already in prayer, maybe studying the scripture, and then you hear the voice of God say, hey, why don't you pray for Bob? And imagine it's the latter. So if you're in heaven and you are righteous and you are with God, with the other saints, you're, I mean, don't you think that would happen? Don't you think that God would lay on their hearts to pray for certain people? And what would stop God from just laying on their hearts to pray for one person or another based on the fact that that's what the person on earth requested God would do? That 
why, why can't God do that? So why can't God just tell them, basically? That's already a mechanism we know that's going on on Earth. Um, and next is, maybe they can just see what's happening on Earth. What's the problem with that? Now, some people say, well, that would be saying they have omniscience. No, it's not. I can see things on Earth. Not everything, but I can see some things. That doesn't make me omniscient. So maybe they can see more things on Earth, a lot of things on Earth. What's wrong with that? Um, yeah, I'd say that if you think that that would be rivaling God for a saint to be able to look down on Earth and know what's going on, then your God's too small. Um, it's not a problem with our saints being too big. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm going to say that, uh, if you're fairly convinced by, by what I laid out here, you could test this out, right? You could go for an empirical, uh, proof. I think that there's lots of, uh, scriptural grounds for this. So if you're worried that you're going to invoke an evil spirit or something, I would suggest you do something like this. You pray, God, I ask you to prompt, I don't know, Peter, Paul, Moses, Elijah, Mary, John the Baptist, to pray for me to understand the truths of the Catholic faith, particularly this one, or to understand if the Catholic faith is wrong and I should be somewhere else. You could do that, right? You're not invoking them. You're asking God to prompt them. That would be a very safe test. So try it out. And I'll add that a lot of Protestants already pray to the saints. Anglicans do. Even some Lutherans do. In fact, I have heard, and I don't think it's an official position at all, but some Lutheran churches will say the Hail Mary in their liturgy. So this isn't just Catholic. This is something that you could accept that's, quote, Catholic and still be a Protestant. All right? I'm not asking you to make a giant leap, but this one I think is just locked up. Let me lay out just one or two uh, pieces of early church evidence. This is from uh, uh, Cyprian of Carthage, and this is 253 AD. Let us remember one another in concord and unanimity. Let us on both sides, and it's of death is the context, always pray for one another. Let us relieve burdens and afflictions by mutual love, that if one of us, by the swiftness of divine condescension, shall hence uh, shall go hence first, our love may continue in the presence of the Lord, in our prayers for our brethren and sisters, not cease in the presence of the Father's mercy. There, 253. I don't think he's describing something controversial or new. This is something which is passed to him very early. Here's Cyril of Jerusalem. Then, during the Eucharistic prayer, we make mention also of those who have already fallen asleep. First, the patriarchs, prophets, apostles, and martyrs, that through their prayers and supplications, God would receive our petition. And that's part of his catechetical lecture. So this is something he's, he's just explaining to guys, like, all right, guys, this, this is like RCIA class or something. That's AD 350, still darn early. And we also know that at very least, maybe you're uncomfortable asking the saints to pray, but angels, well, technically they're saints also. Um, but you could ask the angels to pray. You could ask Gabriel to pray for you, or Raphael, or St. Michael. Here's what uh, is written in the Shepherd of Hermas. This is from AD 80, right? So most, so uh, yeah, most or all of the people in the New Testament would probably still be alive or only recently have died. So this is what's written in the Shepherd of Hermas. But those who are weak and slothful in prayer, Hesitate to ask anything from the Lord, but the Lord is full of compassion and gives without fail to all who ask of him. 
But you, Hermas, having been strengthened by the holy angel you saw, and having obtained from him such intercession, and not being slothful, why do you ask of the Lord understanding? And uh, why do you not ask the Lord understanding and receive it from him? There you go. So now we have an angel interceding for this fella. This is going to be a long episode. That's point number one. <laughs> All right. The next thing I think a Protestant can accept that is, quote, Catholic, just because it makes sense and it's in Scripture, is the fact that Mary is holy and sinless. Or at least holy or sinless. One or the other. I mean, go for both, guys. But here's one thing I want to uh, lay out. Um, And listen, before I was Catholic, it was the Marian dogmas that really gave me the most trouble. But here's an argument that I came up with that really hit me hard. And I find it jars most Protestants when they hear it. At least shakes up their view that Mary must have been some type of uh, sinner or must have been unholy. This proves something really, really, really big about Mary. First, premise one, Jesus fulfilled the whole law, abided by all of it, and never broke it. That's a fact, right? Premise two, if a part of a loaf or a part of a lamb is sacrificed, the whole lamb or loaf becomes holy. I meant to pull up the verse for that, but you can find this both in Leviticus and is quoted in Paul. So Paul quotes this same principle, meaning it's pulled into the new covenant. So, I mean, I wish I had that to quote, but there you go. <laughs> I almost quoted it verbatim for you though. You can certainly look those up. So Leviticus and in Paul. Next up, Christ was our sacrificial lamb. I mean, John the Baptist affirms this. He says, behold, the lamb of God. And I mean, that one's pretty clear. He fulfills the Passover, right? As the Passover lamb. Um, Paul says, behold, um, the Passover, the Paschal lamb has been slain. Let us keep the feast, right? Next one, Jesus was incarnate or infleshed of the Virgin Mary. That's just the Nicene Creed. And if you go to the Athanasian Creed, that one is even more specific, saying that Christ's substance in regards to his divinity from the Father. His substance with regard to his humanity is pulled from the Virgin Mary. This is just basic core in the creeds part of our faith. Um, And if you deny that the body of Christ was pulled from the Virgin Mary, I'd love to hear where you find that in Scripture. Um, (laughs) That's quite the novel new theory. Find me that in the tradition of the church, in Scripture. I'm sorry, this one's pretty locked up. You're going against some of the most core councils, earliest council, right here. So let's put all this together. Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed and he was pulled from the Virgin Mary, then according to the law that Jesus always fulfilled and never violated, the whole of what was sacrificed is made holy. So if a part of a lamb is sacrificed, the whole lamb is made holy. So Jesus's body is pulled from the Virgin Mary, and then he becomes the sacrifice. Ergo, Mary is holy. He's also called the bread of life, and we could get into the Eucharistic stuff there too. So he is pulled from the proverbial lump of dough of Mary. That's where a bread of life comes from. With regards to his humanity, he's pulled from the Virgin Mary, then sacrificed. That means Mary is holy. That just is the law. So 
I mean, you have to accept that. I don't see anywhere. I don't see what premise you would you would kick out of this. I think that this is a pretty straightforward argument here. And you're going to have to really do a lot of work to try to show that's not working. Now, maybe you could say, okay, yeah, maybe she was holy, but she sinned later or she had original sin. Well, I mean, you could argue that, but I'd say the burden of proof is now squarely on you to show that somebody who's uniquely made holy in connection to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in this bodily manner, which none of, I mean, we all get infused with the righteousness of Jesus through the sacraments, yes, but Mary is the only one who gets this connection with the sacrifice having Christ pulled from her body. That's only Mary. So she's made holy by Christ in a unique way. Now tell me how she's a sinner. Tell me how she has original sin. Burden of proof is now squarely on you. At very least, you have to affirm that she is holy. Now you might think, um, I got a verse up my sleeve. It's in Romans it Roman 3. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Ha, huh, there you go. Well, I'll ask you, does this permit of exceptions or not? Pick a side and be consistent. You can't flip-flop. I'm going to hold you to this. So let's take option one. Um, there are exceptions. Okay, then you don't have a verse in opposition to the fact that Mary could be holy. Why'd you quote it? Okay, okay, never mind. I'm coming back. I'm going to take option two. No, there are no exceptions. Jesus He's an exception. Okay, fine. There's an exception for Jesus as a special case. Let's say I grant that to you. Give you another one. Every single child who died before the age of reason. There, right? I can give you millions, maybe billions of examples of people who never sinned, right? What about a baby who dies in the womb of abortion or something? Did they sin? No, of course not. So there you go. There's plenty of people. Okay, I'll permit a billion exceptions. <laughs> it's like, okay, then what are you doing? We have blown apart the idea that this is a truly universal condemnation. Let me tell you what it's actually meaning. The book of Romans is all about the Gentile inclusion into the Jewish covenant. That's what it's about. So what is he making the case for? He's saying, listen, guys, Gentiles have sinned. The Romans have sinned. The Greeks have sinned. Everybody sinned. The Jews have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No matter if you were in the covenant or not, you were a sinner. That's the point. <clears throat> but we can go on. It also seems to be invoking the Psalms. So Psalm 14 slash Psalm 53, which are extremely similar Psalms. So I'll just be quoting, I think this one's Psalm 14. See if you can pick up the language which Paul is probably quoting. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. If anything, guys, is stronger language. Do all the workers um, of iniquity not know who eats up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? They are in great dread, 
For God is with the righteous generation. Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought Psalm 14 slash Psalm 53 that everybody has fallen short. There is nobody is righteous. That God looked down from heaven to see if there's anybody who seeks after God. And there is no one. But we got to verse 5 and now we see that God is with the righteous generation. Other translations say the company of the righteous, or the assembly, or the multitude of the righteous. So we have a whole righteous multitude here. So I think when scripture is saying, hey, no one is seeking after God, it's either A, talking about the normative state of humanity, which indeed is antithetical to the truth. Men love darkness rather than light. B, it's hyperbole to describe a terrible point in salvation history, like right here where the enemies of Israel are attacking. Um, it's talking about, um, yeah, it's talking about types like all Jews and all Gentiles have sinned. It's not making some type of individual statement about every single person because there's Jesus, there's Mary, um, there's all children who died before the age of reason. Um, yeah, that's, that's a lot of, a uh, lot of sinless people, guys. Okay, then we have, if all that's not enough, um, there's parallels of Mary to Eve. And Eve was created without original sin, right? Jesus, um, he was without original sin. Adam was without original sin. And there's an interesting argument, which I won't lay out in depth, but it's saying that Adam was pulled from an uncursed earth, and that the new Adam, Jesus, was pulled from an uncursed earth also. Because Jesus was entirely righteous, holy, and without sin. So he cannot be made up in his material body of something that's cursed by his father. So the material of his body is not cursed by God, it's blessed by God. It is God, it's Jesus, right? So where did he get the earth? Where was he pulled from? Well, he's pulled from Mary, right? Sure. Now, you might be thinking, oh, that creates a regress. No, it doesn't. It's just, it fits the typology. Adam is pulled from the uncursed earth of earth. Well, why is that uncursed? Was it pulled from something else? No, just because God didn't curse it. Done. It's holy. It's righteous. It's happy little earth. Done. No regress. So, Jesus is affirmed to have been pulled from somewhere in his original in his material body, and that's from Mary. Okay, fitting the typology. Is that cursed or uncursed? Well, it's uncursed. Well, does that mean that that had to be pulled from? No, no, no. The typology is just Adam to earth. Earth's not cursed. Jesus to Mary. Mary's not cursed. Simple as that. And this Eve typology is picked up in the fathers a ton. Let me read you a few. This first one's from uh, St. Justin Martyr, which is really early. That's A.D. 155. It says, Jesus became man by the virgin, so that the course which was taken by disobedience in the beginning through the agency of the serpent might be also the very course by which it would be put down. Eve, a virgin and undefiled, conceived the word of the serpent and bore disobedience and death. But the Virgin Mary received faith and joy when the angel Gabriel announced to her the glad tidings that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon her and the power of the Most High would overshadow her. For which reason, the Holy One being born of her is the Son of God. And she replied, be it done unto me according to your word. So we have a very tight Eve to Mary typology, which shows um, that 
this was a, we have Mary and Jesus are people who are not cursed, not under original sin, just like our first parents, because this is restarting creation. Um, so to restart creation, to be the new Adam and Eve, you can't be under um, original sin. Jesus certainly wasn't. Neither was Mary. Neither were Adam and Eve until they sinned. Irenaeus, thus the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. What the virgin Eve has bound in unbelief, the virgin Mary loosed with faith. So another connection for somebody else in 189 AD, the connection between Eve and Mary is taken for granted. Irenaeus goes on, the deception by which that virgin Eve, who was already espoused to man, was happily, unhappily misled, that was to be overturned was happily announced through the means of the truth by the angel to the Virgin Mary, who was espoused to a man. So if Eve disobeyed God, yet Mary was persuaded to be obedient to God. In this way, the Virgin Mary might become the advocate of the Virgin Eve. And thus, as the human race fell into bondage by death by means of a virgin, it is so rescued by a virgin. Virginal disobedience was being balanced in the opposite scale by virginal obedience. For in the same way, the sin of the first created man received amendment by the correction of the first begotten. So another very deep connection between Eve and Mary and Adam and Jesus. So there's good reason typologically to say that Mary would be without sin because she's undoing the sin of Eve. The whole point of Eve messing things up was she sinned. The whole point of Adam messing things up was that was sin. So the whole point of the new creation coming through Jesus and Mary is that they didn't sin, right? They didn't fall to what Adam and Eve did. So why should it be any surprise, given that they are the new Adam and Eve, that they should do the opposite of what Adam and Eve did, which is sin? So that's another reason why we would say that uh, she's without sin. And let me ask, why is that problematic? Why does that actually bother you as a Protestant? Um, here's one thing that I would suggest. In a lot of Protestant theology, stress is placed on Jesus's ability to live a perfect life, meaning to score 100 on the adherence to the law scale. And then his 100, not getting anything wrong on the moral test, was swapped out for our bad grades. It's kind of like two kids in class took a test. Jesus got 100 and submits his uh, paper with no errors for ours that had errors. That's not how scripture presents salvation. That's not how salvation works. Not at all. It, we weren't saved by Jesus not screwing up. No, <laughs> no, um, that's nothing. God could have had a thousand, a million, a billion people just not screw up and that wouldn't grant anybody salvation. No, it's, it's, Salvation is not from just following the law. I thought that's a Protestant point. It's one we all agree with. The law can't save you. So Jesus' ability to live a perfect life in accordance with the law is not what saved us. It was his generous act of self-giving love poured out at the cross, which paid our debt, which defeated Satan. So that's what Jesus did. What's the problem with saying that there were people who just didn't sin? That's not that big. If your view of what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, if your view of Jesus is that all he really did was just not break the law, 
then your Jesus is way too small and you got salvation wrong. Jesus did so much more than just not break the law. He offered a perfect human life, which was infused with the very love of God. That's what he did. So it's no problem to just say, yeah, sure, there's people who who have not sinned. No problem. Mary, what's the big deal? (laughs) Adam and Eve before they sinned, right? Um, Any of us before we sinned. Uh, any person whose life was cut short before they could sin. All those people, right? What's the problem? And by the way, I'm making the point that Protestants can take this view, and what better way than to quote a couple Protestants? So this is Ulrich Zwingli, my least favorite reformer. He says, I esteem immensely the mother of God, the ever-chaste, immaculate Virgin Mary. So he had a very high view Um, of Mary. We have John Wycliffe, the English reformer, who wrote, it seems to me that we should obtain the reward of heaven with the help of Mary. There is no sex or age nor rank or position of anyone in the whole human race which has no need to call for the help of the Virgin Mary. So these are people who view Mary in very high esteem. Um, Let me go on. Here's a few from Martin Luther before he changed his tune. This is is early Luther. This is uh, collected from uh, catholicculture.org. They put these quotes together. But I verified them because oftentimes when you look for Luther quotes and others, you get get all sorts of stuff. So you got to make sure if you're quoting Luther, you're getting the real Luther. I don't know why this is so problematic. Anyways, he said, um... Luther says, she is full of grace, proclaimed to be entirely without sin, something exceedingly great, for God's grace fills her with everything good and makes her devoid of all evil. This is from his uh, personal or little prayer book published in 1522. We also have, it is a sweet and pious belief that the infusion of Mary's soul was effected without original sin, so that in the very infusion of her soul, she was also purified from original sin and adorned with God's gifts, receiving a pure soul infused by God. Thus, from the first moment she began to live, she was free from all sins. That's from his sermon on the day of the conception of the mother of God in 1527. Um, let's see. Here's another one. This is a sermon that he did in 1522 on Christmas. It is the consolation and the superabundant goodness of God that man is able to exalt in such a treasure. Mary is his true mother. Christ is his brother. God is his father. Mary is the mother of Jesus and the mother of all of us, even though it was Christ alone who reposed on her knees. If he is ours. We ought to be in his situation. There where he is, we ought also to be. And all that he has uh, he has, ought to be ours. And his mother also to be our mother. That's from his sermon, his Christmas sermon in 1529. So some of those um, from Luther are saying that, uh, yeah, she's without sin, devoid of all personal evil because of God's grace. Yep, Luther thought that. Others are saying, well, she... Um, holds an incredibly high rank in heaven. We should ask of her help. So we should invoke her prayers. That's John Wycliffe. Um, that we should esteem her immensely, that she is an immaculate Virgin Mary, right? Immaculate without sins. That's Zwingli. Yeah. And then we have the early church father's witness. Um, 
I'm pulling most of the early church father quotes from churchfathers.org. Check them out. They're an excellent source. I will read uh, just the one from St. Augustine, which I think is really good. This is uh, from AD 415. So still darn early, but not like crazy early. But I think this one's pretty clear. This is what St. Augustine says. And I'll say that people like Calvin held Augustine in incredibly high esteem. And if you're a Protestant, I think you should too. Most Protestants like this guy, and here's what he said. Mary is exempted from sin, even amongst all those called holy. Having accepted the Holy Virgin Mary, concerning whom, on the account of the honor of the Lord, I wish to have absolutely no question when treating of sins. For how do we know what abundance of grace for the total overcoming of sin was conferred upon her, who merited to conceive and bear him in whom there was no sin? So he thinks that she actually merited to conceive and bear Christ. Does that mean that it was of her own effort? No, it was empowered by grace. She's the one full of grace so that her life can be meritorious in such a way that she can be the one to bear God. It's always God who produces in us anything of merit. But that's not to say that we can't have merits. Of course we can. So Augustine believes that it's her who merited to conceive and bear him in whom there is no sin. He goes on. So I say with the exception of the virgin. If we could have gathered together all those holy men and women when they were living here and had asked them whether they were without sin, what do we suppose would have been their answer? So what he's saying is that even amongst those gathered holy men and women who could have sinned, the Virgin Mary would have been an exception from this because of the abundant grace that helped her overcome sin because of her special connection to Jesus Christ. We're going to take a brief break here, and then, uh, man, I don't know if I'm going to do a part two. (laughs) We only got through a couple. We got through two things. I promised you six. I'm going to keep chugging. I think we can hurry it up. Next one is purgatory coming right up. Purgatory. Okay, so we have a pretty logical argument for this one that we will get into scripture. One. Some of us are going to go to heaven, right? Some of us. Two, nothing unclean enters heaven. So we're not even going to have the desire to sin because that would be a a, a defective will, right? Next, we do have these things now. We do have damaged wills, damaged intellects. We do have desires which are unclean, sinful. Like even Paul said that, you know, he had the flesh welling up, etc. So this means that There's got to be something between earthly life and entrance to heaven that gets rid of these faults. And that leaves us with two options. Either we get rid of them through our own work or God gets rid of them for us. So that second option is what Catholics think. We think that God gets rid of these things for us. All right. So here's a couple ways that a Protestant could... uh, could um, reject this. One, we could say that, um, well, maybe uh, heaven just doesn't include us at all, and the only people that make it to heaven are people who turned out to be perfect on earth. I mean, that's pretty scary, and I don't think that that's that's necessarily true. (laughs) I mean, the way's narrow, but I don't think it's so narrow that nobody who dies with any sinful attachments or desires um, will have a chance at heaven. 
I don't think most Protestants would say that. Next, we'd say that uh, we could purify ourselves in the afterlife. But that seems to be, A, kind of a works-based salvation. That's not something that Protestants like. That's not something that Catholics like either, of course. Um, but they could say that we do it instead of God to skip purgatory. But then actually that just turns into a weird purgatory where it's still purgatory, but we're doing the work instead of the Holy Spirit doing the work. Um I mean, there's a couple ways you can avoid this. Uh, one is some people say, well, this does happen, but it's instantaneous, at which point Catholics go, okay, cool story, bro. Like, we're actually open to that. Like, we don't, there is no Catholic teaching about how long purgatory takes. You're just arguing for a short, short purgatory. And maybe you can lay out a case for that. I don't see anything in scripture that says it's instant. Um, and if you're just a Bible-believing Protestant, well, in order to make a claim, Theologically, I feel like you should support it with Scripture. So you could say that, but it feels like you're still just affirming purgatory. But here's my favorite one. So if you're a Protestant and you want a way to get rid of purgatory, I think this is your best bet. I've been trying to give the best bet to get around these things. Here it is. Just say that all of your sinful desires and everything, all that pertains to the flesh. So that when you're separated from the flesh your spirit is actually pure. Um, you could explain some things this way, but here's the big problem. That can drop you into the Gnostic heresy really, really fast, that the flesh is evil and that your spirit is somehow pure and good. That's a big problem. And next, well, not all sins would work that way. It's true that in the flesh there could be gluttony or lust and things like that. However, we also have sins which are intellective sins, like pride or envy. So what about those? You can't just blame the flesh for that. That's a problem. That's a defect in your reason and your will and the immaterial part. So although I think that working with that argument might be your best bet, I still don't think it's a very good argument. Let's go on to, I'll just briefly mention that uh, in the Old Testament, the way that sins knocked out is with the flood, like Noah's flood. And water even carries into the New Testament. But the way the world's remade, like all of the flood in the new world, is through fire. So in the Old Testament, we have water um, transfers from one life to another, just like we have in baptism, right? And we have a, uh, a water purification, right? Think the mikvahs, which are present in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and are present to this day in the Jewish faith. Now, there is a specific mikvah which happens where um, the bride, before she is married, goes and takes this ritual bath, is made beautiful, is cleaned of all of the stuff from her regular life and made beautiful for her husband. That seems to map on perfectly to what happens with the bride of Christ, the church, prior to living in the Father's land, just like the Jewish whole thing would work, you, the son comes, picks up his bride, there's all the trumpet blast, like a thief in the night, and goes off to a place that he has prepared for her on the Father's land. So Jesus is saying that I am the bridegroom, I'm coming back for you, there's going to be the blowing of trumpets, I will come like a thief in the night, and it's expected that there would be a mikvah, there would be a bath, there would be a cleaning of the bride. That's part of the whole marriage idea that Jesus himself is invoking. He's comparing us to a bride, and the bride does indeed get this type of bathing and cleaning, this purification and beautification prior to being brought to her new home, which would be analogous to heaven. 
So there's that. So we get this purification as the bride of Christ through fire. So no longer will everything be destroyed by um, and remade by water. I mean, baptism is a different thing, and I think we might even have an episode on baptism. But now we get this purification by fire. So the earth being remade, everything being remade is through the purgation fire instead of the purgation water. Okay, now to shamelessly quote my own article on purgatory, let's pick it up with um, Matthew 5.25 and break down some of this. Matthew 5.25 and 26 says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're still on the way to court with him or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So this is me writing now. Court is the judgment at death. The accuser is the person you have wronged through sin. Prison is purgatory. Paying the last penny is paying your temporal debt and getting out means going to heaven. So let's Put these into my very dynamic, quote, translation. Settle the debts of your sin before you die and face judgment, or the debt that you owe on earth will be seen by God, and God will send you to purgatory, where the Holy Spirit will not allow you to leave until your temporal debt is paid. I think those are reasonable definitions. That seems to be what it's saying. Some people have proposed that this prison is just regular hell. The issue with that is no one leaves hell. And Jesus indicates that this person will leave when the last penny is paid. And the prison is also clearly not heaven because unrighteousness is not in heaven. And it's not earth because, well, this is the place we go after the judgment. And the place that we call not heaven, not really hell, hell, like the hell of the damned, um, not earth, it's none of these things, that place is called purgatory. Others object that the phrase, quote, I tell you that you will not get out until you have paid the last penny actually means that we will never get out because as sinners, we cannot pay the debt of our sins. Only Christ can. However, what's being addressed does not appear to be an eternal debt since in the passage, it can be satisfied on earth if we come to terms with the person we've wronged. Furthermore, in the passage, this type of debt can be settled monetarily, and our eternal salvation obviously cannot be settled monetarily. So the eternal debt we owe God is paid by Jesus, and everybody agrees on that. Everybody. But is this the debt that Jesus is talking about here? The eternal debt? No, because here's the context. So when you are offering your gift at the altar— if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser and then it goes on to the part we already read. So who's the accuser? Clearly in this passage, it is not Satan as John Calvin believed. It is our brothers and sisters. That's what scripture says. So can we settle wrongs with our neighbors, with our brothers and sisters, without the atonement of Jesus? Uh, yeah, of course we can. And we do it literally all the time. Imagine I borrow your hedge trimmers and I use them with reckless abandon, as I do. And I break them beyond repair. You would accuse me of destroying your property. What do you think Jesus would want me to do in this situation? Should I respond to you that 
your charge, uh, that, that actually Jesus paid it all, including the price of your hedge trimmers? Would Jesus maybe instead tell me not to conclude that, but to just go down to Lowe's and buy you a new one, maybe apologize to you? If you think that Jesus would tell me to go and buy you a new pair of hedge trimmers, welcome to the Catholic reading of this passage. On to 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that had already been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, the work of each builder will become visible for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work has been done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. And if the work is burnt up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. So here we learned that after death and before heaven, those of us who built their lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ will pass through a fire that will destroy the evil and worthless things and preserve the good. Purgatory is a place after death, is a place before heaven. It has fire and destroys the evil with us. It prepares us for union with God and it causes us to suffer the loss, the loss of our sinful desires that we should be purging out of our lives. This passage is describing purgatory. Some say that this is just describing the general judgment. However, it doesn't seem to be describing the separation of the sheep and the goats. It doesn't seem to be addressing those who go to hell. It's only an event that happens to those who built their lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it happens uniquely to Christians. What do the early church fathers say? Augustine kills it on this one in the City of God, um, AD 419, and then later on his Handbook of Faith, Hope, and Charity in F AD 421. Here's what he says. Temporal punishments are suffered by some in this life only, by some after death, by some both here and thereafter, but all of them before but all of them before that last and strictest judgment, not all who suffer temporal punishments after death will come to eternal punishments, right? Not all who suffer temporal punishments after death will come to eternal punishments, which are to follow after that judgment. So there you go. He affirms an afterlife place with temporal punishment prior to getting to heaven. That, there you go. Pretty darn early into the church. Here's another one. That there should be some fire even after this life is not incredible, and it can be inquired into and either be discovered or left hidden whether some of the faithful may be saved, some more slowly and some more quickly, in the greater or lesser degree in which they loved the good things that perish through a certain purgatorial fire. There you go. And it's not just early church fathers. It's also your own dude, C.S. Lewis. Here's what he says in defense of purgatory in the letters to Malcolm, letter number 20. Our souls demand purgatory, don't they? Would it not break the heart if God said to us, It is true, my son, that your breath smells and that your rags drop with mud and slime, but we are charitable here, and no one will upbraid you with these things, nor draw away from you. Enter into the joy. Shall we not reply with submission, sir? And if there is no objection, I'd rather be cleaned first. It may hurt you now. Even so, sir. I assume that the process of purification will normally involve suffering, partly from tradition and partly because most real good that has been done to me in life has involved it. That's C.S. Lewis. 
Now, Calvin and Luther disagree with purgatory, but for some pretty bad reasons. First, Luther doesn't like it, arguing against it because he doesn't like indulgences, which even if indulgences were wrong in every guise, well, that isn't even an argument against purgatory. That's just an argument against indulgences. And by the way, I'm thinking about doing a full episode defending indulgences and clarifying when they can be used right and wrong. Um, Luther also argues that this is against faith alone, but faith alone is wrong. James says faith without works is dead. Uh, Paul says, I could have all the faith, all the faith as so to move mountains, but without love, I am nothing. So at very least, you need to accept that there's love. And I suggest you check out my episode covering um, faith alone versus the Catholic gospel. John Calvin says that, well, the problem is that um, um, this is only Christ can make satisfaction for, for sins. He's, um, the problem with that is that's not necessarily true. We can make satisfaction for temporal sins, like is in that gospel passage where somebody could make a monetary satisfaction to the neighbor that they wronged, right? So that's a type of satisfaction. If you're arrested for a crime and you do the time, you've made satisfaction for the temporal punishment. But it's true that only Jesus does the eternal satisfaction for the giant debt of sin that would land us in hell. Um, but yeah, Calvin just misses the point here. And Paul writes... Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What? What on earth is this? Well, let's keep reading. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from all ages past and generation, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is this mystery which was hidden, which has now been revealed? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. He goes on, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which uh, works uh, which mightily works within me. So what's going on here? How is Christ's affliction lacking? It's not, except that it has not yet been applied in us, in our lives. And when we do apply it in our lives, well, that's the manifestation of his glory. That's a wonderful thing. So it's God's power mightily working in us so that we have in our life a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus makes satisfaction for sins. So God in us, through us, by his power, will also make satisfaction for sins. Now, not on the scale of Jesus, but when Christ is active in our lives, we can do a tiny version of what he did, and we should. So in purgatory, we're making satisfaction for sins. Yeah, but that's only with Christ, with the Holy Spirit doing this for us. It's only God empowered. It's not us empowered. I think Calvin missed this big time. All right, we might have to leave it right there. At least take another break. We're picking it up with the next one, which is... 
Protestants should accept classical theism, and many do, but many, sadly, do not. All right, this is just going to have to be a two-part episode. So this was part one. I hope you join me for part two of, quote, Catholic things that Protestants could totally accept, and they really should. If you ever want to reach out to me, reach out to the email thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. It's in the show notes. Um, with any questions, with any comments, uh, let me know where you're listening from, how you heard about us. I do really invite you to share this and other episodes with a friend and to uh, rate and review. I know you hear that all the time, but come on, do it for me, guys. I definitely appreciate those, and it helps more people find the show. So if you think it's a valuable show, um, then hit all those buttons and do the review. If you don't think that there's anything of value in this show, then what are you doing still listening to me? Go listen to Trent Horn. Okay, well, thank you, guys, and I hope you join me for the next episode.